of the Mixed Witches podcast. It is the last week of October. So I hope you're getting all your spookiness in. Because then it's about to become holiday season and spookiness is going to go right out the window. Yep. It was nice while it spooked. You're right. (laughs) It was. And then it would be Christmas, and I'm going to become the most annoying person that's ever existed. No, honestly. I love me some Christmas. Honestly, my coworkers are never going to hear the end of Christmas music during Christmas season. It's not going to happen. Literally, November 1st, I'm gone. <sighs> I'm going to make Santa exist. So <laughs> my face. <laughs> me as one person. Anyway. Anyway. I go first today. So. Fucking buckle up, Susan. Alright. I am talking about mummification. Because I, I have a love for mummies. That might be a little weird, but I do. So. Starting off. Most people know about mummification from the Egyptians. And so when most people think mummies, they think the wrapped people in their sarcophagus and all their riches and so on and so forth. And while that might, like, while this might be overstating things, I think it's safe to say that we all had our Egyptian phase when we were growing up. I might be projecting there, but I'm pretty sure we all at least went through a little bit of an Egyptian phase. For at least a year of my life, I was fascinated by Egypt. Like I would just inhale anything I could get my like dirty little paws on. <laughs> this was of course before I found out about Percy Jackson and then I got converted into a Greek fanatic, so on and so forth. Converted? <laughs> <laughs> and like one of my main attractions to Egypt when I was a kid was the process of mummification and their particular like their particular outlook on afterlife. I thought it was interesting. I still do think it's interesting. So. Yes. <laughs> so, point being, most people know about Egypt's mummification process, but not that other cultures had um, different processes to achieve like achieve a similar end. Even then, there were some cultures that accidentally created mummies through, like, sheer dumb luck. (laughs) There was a lot of cultures like that. Let me rephrase. Great. Um, I talked about 
some of those cultures last year in the death traditions. So I tried, uh, like I'm hoping that I didn't revisit too many of them. Of course, I didn't go back and listen to the death traditions episode like I could have. But, you know, <laughs> foresight. I didn't have it. That's okay. So, uh, many people know that you can use resins and oils to embalm and mummify a body, like Egypt, thank you. But you can also do this with ice, hot, dry air, salt, and even a bog. So, while the mummies aren't all going to look the same, the end is still the same. You know, a mummy. <laughs> you get a very well-preserved body. So we'll start with Egypt, since I've already been talking about it. You gotta have some common footing to stand on before going into everything else people don't know about. According to Jason Daly in his article, Egyptians cracked the recipe for embalming resin well before the time of the pharaohs, in Smithsonian Magazine, uh, evidence suggests that embalming and mummification was being practiced as far back as 4500 BC to 3100 BC. Uh, when we previously believed that it began in 2600 BC. So that's a huge time gap. Like, even just between when they think it might have started compared to when we know that it was being practiced. Huge time gaps. But it kind of reminds me of how Egyptians had a perfected recipe for concrete that we only just recently cracked. So, you know, there you there you are. Found. We did not crack it. We refound it. No, what I mean... <laughs> we didn't even do that good. No, what I mean we cracked it is that we figured out the recipe again. Like, we... we Match, no, that's what I match mean. They the word. found the recipe again. No, what I mean is Literally. there was a word missing. They had re they had un like oh, translated it wrong, and that's what I mean. They cracked the word that they translated wrong. I understand what you mean. So there are a shitload of articles on mummification in Smithsonian Magazine. I did not get the chance to read all of them, but there's a long list. And I'm not going to list them all. <laughs> Just know, if you really want to read about mummification, Smithsonian Magazine is free. And they have a lot on mummification. So the reason the Egyptians mummified bodies in the first place was because it was really important religiously for the body to be as lifelike as possible. Even pets and exotic animals, such as lion cubs, were also mummified in the same process. So, like, there's pictures of cats actually mummified in the bandages and everything like that. So the first thing they did was... All the, the, all the organs that might decay quickly were, remo were removed. Um, the brain was removed using a hooked instrument that was inserted up the nose, as most of us know. I think that was like a standard thing we learned about. They used it as like a gross out factor when we were kids. I just thought it was cool, but you know, nobody asked my opinion. The only organ that remained in the body was the heart because they believed that to be like the center of the soul. 
So organs were preserved separately. Uh, The stomach, lungs, liver, and intestines were placed in special boxes or jars called uh, canopic jars. And later on, the process changed so that these organs were treated, wrapped, and then replaced inside the body. The next step was dehydration. So the body was covered in natrin, which is a salt that that occurs naturally. This was also placed in the body's cavities. The natrin would be removed from the body when the process was done. So dehydration completely over. False eyes were added along with linen to fill out any sunken portions. And then they began the wrapping. So hundreds of yards of linen were used to wrap from head to toe, and sometimes the fingers and toes were wrapped separately. Prayers and sigils were written on the linen, and amulets were placed in the wrappings. A mask would be put in place during the wrapping as well, and then the wrappings would be periodically periodically covered in warm resin. The resin was made up of animal fats, plant sterols, pine resin, and essential oils such as frankincense, myrrh, cedar, and juniper. Everything that they used in the resin has some like antibacterial properties, which I find interesting. Last, the shroud was placed and secured with linen straps. So I said last, like that's the last step. I meant the last shroud. (laughs) was placed and secured with linen straps. Then then, uh, a tomb was filled with furniture, statues, wall paintings, and lists of foods and prayers for the person to have in the afterlife. This is the last. (laughs) Religious rites were performed at the tomb's entrance, with the most important being the opening of the mouth. A priest used a special instrument to metaphorically open parts of the body And when used on the mouth, it would allow the deceased to talk and eat in the afterlife. Then the body would be placed in a coffin, so like their sarcophagus, in the burial chamber and the entrance sealed. So with such an elaborate and expensive process, you can imagine why we know so much about them. Like um, embalmers, the people people who perform the mummification, it was a profession. So they were knowledgeable and we assume they were trained because we have manuscripts or like scrolls, you know, that they found to suggest that it's more, it was more used as a memory aid rather than a teaching tool. So what they've surmised is that mummification was a trade of sorts And then these manuscripts were used to remind them of the more like delicate or um, more intricate parts of the mummification process. So a lot of care was taken for these practices. The Egyptians believed if the body was destroyed, then the soul would be lost. So that's why it was so important to keep it intact. Uh, They believed the spirit was made up of three different portions. So the ka, which is the double remaining uh, within the tomb. And then you have the ba, which can travel to and from the tomb. And it's considered the soul. 
And then you have the uh, the Ak, which is the spirit, and that portion traveled to the underworld to be judged and then enter the under, uh, enter the afterlife. Before they developed this process, it was believed that they accidentally mummified remains by placing them in shallow graves in the sand. So sand has salt in it, and then of course the air is super dry and uh, and arid. So all of those things, you know, the sand was pulling out moisture, the air was essentially cooking the body, <laughs> so on and so forth. But that is the Egyptian process of mummification. Then we go on to the United Kingdom. This is one of the ones that is more accidental. Like, we don't think they knew what they were doing. But when you think of the UK, you don't normally think of mummies. But they have had their fair share, just like every other place, uh, that are not of Egyptian origin. So if you don't know, which I found this out recently, and it still boggles my mind, tombs started to be raided at some point uh, before like archaeologists got there. And the mummies were taken and sold. Now, <laughs> they were used as party favors in, for some Victorian parties, and they had these, these, party, these parties called unwrapping parties. So they would acquire a mummy, and then they would get all these weird Victorian people together, and they would unwrap the mummy as a party favor. The Victorians were weird, if you didn't know. In uh, Bronze Age Britain, it seems that mummifying took place for at least a little bit, uh, like a type of mummification. The oldest bodies that they found are from 13 and 1600 BC. So the skeletons were surprisingly intact with minimal decomposition, suggesting that they had been preserved at some point. Scientists could tell this because, you know, the flesh has gone away. But scientists could tell this because of the pitting that is found in bones uh, of bodies that are not preserved. Um, this is caused by your stomach bacteria, which is released when, uh, like, it's all tightly contained within your stomach while you're alive. But once the processes stop, then it gets released into your body, which is what causes the bloating and decay, so on and so forth but it also eats away at the bones. So the lack of pitting that they found on these bones suggests there was a pre-burial preservation. Due to the age, there would have uh, only been a few methods, which is smoking or like pickling in a peat bog. So the two oldest bodies that were found beneath the Clod Holland had a strange assembly of bones, which also suggests that there was some ritual, so ritualistic significance. If I remember correctly, they recovered like 35 bodies and 16 of them showed this lack of pitting. And that's why they think it was intentional mummification and not accidental mummification. 
So going from there, we're going to talk about the mummies that were found in the peat bog in Scotland. It's not only Scotland where these bog bodies have been found. Like, you know, people... Bog bodies. That's what they... That's what it was called, bog bodies. Like, Scotland's not the only place they were found. They've been found in, uh, like, Denmark, across the Baltics, across the UK. Wherever there are bogs, chances are there's probably going to be at least a body down there. So the bog bodies suggest that the peat bogs were specifically used for these types of preservations. Uh, there's a 2,500-year-old body known as the Balatulish goddess, and she dates back to 600 BC. She was found about 120 meters from the shore of the Loch Leven, and offerings seem to be made to her for safe passage across the waters. Then you have the Lindau Man, one of, the, one of hundreds of bodies like him, have been found in the marshes in Northern Europe. He was clubbed, strangled, his throat cut, and then he was kicked into the bog. But this process suggests that he was used as a human sacrifice. Other theories, though, include accident, punishment, execution, and a robbery gone wrong. Accident. That's, that's what I said. I said accident? He was clubbed, strangled, throat cut, and then kicked in. Like, there's actual evidence of somebody kicking him in the small of the back. But he was sitting first. Point being. Point being, there was no accident. Point there's being. There's many he, a theory, but it was no accident. Point being, he was a human sacrifice. <laughs> so this. Absolutely murdered him. So this type of mummification in peat bogs is due to the lack, like, the lack of oxygen within the waters. And this helps to inhibit bacterial growth. And there's also the death of a plant known as, oh god, sphagnum, smognum, oh my god, which inhibits bacterial metabolism. The death of this plant down there inhibits bacterial metabolism. That's all you need to know. Essentially, bogs cure bodies in a similar process to tanning, according to Jacob uh, how do I say that name? Min, uh, Mikanowski, God, okay. from the Atlantic in his article, Were the Mysterious Bog People Human Sacrifices? I'm going to say yes, just because old cultures were crazy. Okay. Now we move on to South America. Now we know the Aztecs 1,000% committed human sacrifice very often. There is evidence that in the span of four days, they killed 10,000 people. This is not about the Aztecs, but I just want you to know, this is about human sacrifice. <laughs> 
but also intentional and accidental mummification. There's two types here. So apparently, South America is the Earth's largest natural laboratory for making mummies. This is done by the sands on the coast because it's super dry, super arid, deserty kind of areas. The, the uh, Chinchuro people learned to mummify their dead 7,000 years ago, which they believe is about 2,000 years before the Egyptians started mummifying their people. They have a very interesting history concerning their mummification in South America. Uh, I didn't go into all of it, but I'm going to go into some of it. According to Mark Johnson in his article, surprise, I'm so mad. This is so CNN. <laughs> it says, surprise, the world's oldest mummies are not in Egypt, which is from CNN Travel. There are five distinct styles noted over 4,000 years of mummification, with the most prevalent being black and red mummies. So, first off, these two types of mummification kind of gross me out, but I'm going to talk about them. I think I said, I don't know, did I send you that thing yesterday about the sock? The what? No, okay. No. Cool. <laughs> no, you didn't. Cool, it comes up later. Does it come up later? I might I might not have written it down. Anyways, uh so it says the black mummies involved the deceased being completely taken apart, including the skin, treated and then completely reassembled. The now the article that I was reading at the time not this one, not the CNN travel one. The article I was reading at the time, which I think was from Smithsonian Magazine, or no, you know what? I remember it was from National Geographic. Almost a direct quote, the skin was put back on- oh, you did send it to me. Like a sock. No. And I hate National Geographic for that. No. So those were black mummies. That's okay. <laughs> like, that's, that's all right. So those were black mummies. So they were completely dismembered. Everything was taken out through these holes that they made. I don't know why the skin was taken off. There was no explanation. I assume we don't know why. <laughs> uh, the brain was taken Just out. Just for fucking kicks. Just for fucking kicks. The, the brain was taken out through the hole that was created when they took the head off. And then it was reassembled when the, you know, the, the curing process was done. Now, red mummies had their organs removed through incisions and then the body was dried. So that is more akin to what the Egyptians did, removing the organs that would make the, like that would make the body decay, so on and so forth. From there, the body, the cavity of the body would be filled with sticks and reeds. Well, this is all, this is still from CNN. And I remember while I was reading this, I was like, this person is an insensitive prick. <laughs> <laughs> like the way that he was talking about the deceased 
was making my stomach turn a little bit. Like, just, it, it just bothered me the way he was talking about it. Because I think, at, like, he just kept using the term the dead body, the dead body. And I was like, that's a deceased person. Can you not have more respect? Nope. No. Because CNN. <laughs> so from there, the body was then adorned with a writ. A rig? No, a wig and a clay mask. <sighs> Moving on to more human sacrifice. Great. So the Incan were not as prevalent with the human sacrifice as the Aztecs. Like, they didn't kill as many people as the Aztecs but they were still prevalent in the human sacrifice ring. So the Incan Ice Maiden was one of the Inca's many children sacrifice that they used to appease their gods. So the cold temperatures of their sacrificial site, which is the Andes where the god Apu resided, kept the bodies preserved. So we know that freezing a body keeps it preserved. That's why we have morgues. You know, keep the body cold, and the body doesn't decay. <laughs> Oftentimes, these sacrifices were young girls. That's why they're called ice maidens. But sometimes young boys were also used. But young girls were chosen at birth or very early to act as Akeya uh, or sun virgins. Juanita, which is the most talked about ice maiden, was found intact and in situ, which I assume is a sitting up position, on the volcanic peak. The girls or boys chosen as sacrifices were drugged with chichi, an alcoholic brew, or co uh, coca leaves to ensure compliance and then killed on the peak. The most well-preserved mummy in the world, this is the claim, the most well-preserved mummy in the world is another maiden, and she is the maiden of Yuyayako. Uh, Yuyayako. Oh, God, it's a mouthful. That's a lot of double L's. <laughs> Who was also an Incan girl and died in her sleep. So she actually had a peaceful death. They assume uh, due to exposure but everybody else was due to blunt trauma. But not all of the Incans mummies were by accident. So of course the Ice Maidens, they didn't intentionally mummify them. Like they just left them up there and they were mummified because of the cold. But not all of their mummies were by accident. In the Andes and with the Inca, Mummification was used as a means of pre preserving power. So the ancestors of, for example, the ancestors of the emperor were paraded behind him during holy festivals. Like their fucking mummies were picked up and paraded behind him. So it's believed that mummy- Whose job was that? <laughs> what? Whose job was that? Cool. To sit there and carry the dead mummy person. It's really unfortunate because, like, when an emperor died, 
he was just added into the lineup. So the ones before him did not go anywhere. Um, so it's believed that mummies made, uh, made of loved ones. That sentence doesn't flow. <laughs> it's believed that the loved ones were made into mummies as representatives of the community, as well as used to understand and ritualize death. Andean people placed ancestors in caves and burial towers known as Chuyap uh, Chuyapas. God, I'm so sorry. I'm butchering all these words today. Uh, <laughs> sometimes these mummies were exhumed and danced with during festivals, which I remember talking about this during the Death Traditions episode last year, so I didn't go in-depth into it. Uh, the oldest of them could also become uakas uh, or holy things. The Inca remained in power through the exploitation exploitation of their mummies. So when the Incan Empire empire when the when an Incan emperor died, he was mummified through the removal of his organs, embalming, and then freeze drying the body. And essentially through that, like, his son would take over, but his ideals would remain in play because they believed that these people were not truly dead, they were just slowed down. In a sense, I should say. Okay. <laughs> so the Spanish eventually... Uh, confiscated their mummies because of the sway that they held. Some Spaniards showed respect for the mummies, covering them in white sheets as they carried them through the streets, away from the castles and all that good jazz, or away from their center, wherever they lived, like wherever the emperor lived. And they also removed their caps when the bodies were passing. But, unfortunately for the Spaniards, the people still continued to venerate their own local dead. So, the old, their own local mummies. Sorry, Spaniards, you took over the wrong country. Alright, next we have Papua New Guinea, which I also talked about this last year, but I'm going to go back into it because it's weird, but I enjoy this one. It's, it's gross and weird, but I enjoy this one. Okay. So in Papua New Guinea, the Anga people mummify their dead. After mummification, the ancestors are set on rock ledges near the village to watch over them. So they're, uh, they're mummified in a sitting position so that they can be taken up to these ledges. They are smoked for three months over a constantly roaring fire. As the body bloats, it is poked with wooden sticks to drain the fluids, and the evor- <laughs> uh, Like, this part is gross, so like skip ahead a, a minute or something if you get super, super easily grossed out. The organs are eventually allowed to fall out naturally through the anus that is widened with a stick. I know. <laughs> 
no part, whether it's organ, body, or fluids, is allowed to touch the ground. If it does, it's considered to invite bad luck. And the people who are mummifying, so the mummifiers, are not allowed to leave the body or bathe during that time. Um, what? Yeah, you don't even know. The problem is you don't know how long it takes. When I read that, I was like, oh, okay, you know, probably takes like a couple, maybe two weeks, whatever. Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> also, also, when the body fluids are drained, they cover themselves in them. The family members. No. To ward off no. evil spirits. No, fuck off. <laughs> no. So... It is important for the face to be kept intact as the Anga do not have pictures. So this is a way they use to remember their ancestors. I could have sworn I wrote down how long it took to smoke the body. I thought you said three months at the beginning. Oh, okay, I did. You're right. I told you, and then they don't bathe. During that time frame. Great. Great. Well, I've been thinking this whole time that I skipped something. Like, I, I feel like I skipped a page somewhere. Because I don't remember saying that... <sighs> saying that the mummification for Egypt takes 70 days. Oh. You didn't. <laughs> how did I... How did I... 70 days. How did I, how did I skip that whole paragraph? I, <laughs> it really is just this whole, it's just this one paragraph that I missed. Oh, I started talking about the animals. That's why. So before I go on, because Papua New Guinea is done. <laughs> for Egypt, the process took 70 days to complete, 35 for dehydration and 35 for wrapping. On the 68th day, the body was placed in a coffin, and the last two days were spent on rituals dedicated to the deceased's safe journey to the afterlife. So those things happened in the mouth of the tomb. Those last two days. Now back. So that's two cultures that took over, over, over two months to make their mummies. It's a lot. Now, don't think that East Asia is exempt. <laughs> They've also got their share of mummies. Uh, just outside of the Arctic Circle, mummies in Siberia were discovered with copper masks and skulls caved in to prevent spells from being put on the dead. That's not East Asia, but, you know, I don't know why I put that one there. Anyway. Anyway, so Siberia. Uh, whether the mummification was intentional or not, most likely accidental due to the terrain, remains to be seen. So they don't know. They were recently found. There was like 35, 34 bodies, and they were all the same. So women, children, and men. They were all found with copper masks, and they were all found with their feet pointing to this specific river that they were buried outside of. 
But lastly, I'm going to end with China. So in China, the oldest and best preserved mummies were found in the Tarim Basin by the Xinjiang Archaeology Archaeological Institute in 2000. The site had phallus and vulva posts made of poplar, st striking, striking wooden human figurines and masks, leather hides, and boat coffins. This is very specific. I wrote it down because I was like, well, that's weird. While I couldn't find an increasing amount of information on the actual mummies themselves, there were pictures. Which was interesting. Right. Yeah. Honestly, they were not... It was just weird to look at because they kind of just looked like... You know how the Victorians would dress up their people and take pictures with them? Yes. That's how lifelike these bodies looked. So, the mummies appeared to be very, very, very well preserved. And... I wonder, that must be really in, scary in a way for archaeologists. No, honestly. They just look like a person, but if they're dead. But, like, they don't look it, and you just, I don't know, that's, no. <laughs> like, the, like, the pictures that I saw really didn't look that dead. I'm sure in person they probably did. But, like, the one thing that I noticed from the picture I saw was, like, the woman had really long, lush hair. It's a weird thing to notice on a dead body, but she had really long, lush hair. Like, this would be hair people would be jealous of. Yeah. And she honestly just looked like she was sleeping. Like, the only thing that you could tell that she wasn't alive is the fact that her eyes were sunken in. But that was about it. Like, creepy. Very creepy. I think I didn't, I didn't do Africa again. I feel bad. I forgot Africa this time. I'll get, I'll get back to Africa on the mummies and the, uh, the scary stories. So I'll have to pay them back. A whole Africa episode for you. <laughs> But that's what I have. Mummies. They're everywhere. Everybody has some version of a mummy. Whether by accident or on purpose. Well, the hot-ass desert places and then the cold-ass places do. Everyone, people, everyone who was moderate, I don't know. I guess y'all are fucked. Figure it out. <laughs> What are we supposed to do? It's moderate weather. I don't know. Fuck yourself. <sighs> Figure it out, dude. Cure him like a ham. Oh. That's what happened. Um, there was one. <laughs> there was one. I can't remember where the salt mine was, but a man was killed in a salt mine and he was preserved because of the saline from the salt. That's how he was mummified. Great. Cured like a ham. You know, that's <laughs> that's really disrespectful. <laughs> just 
too much. I feel bad now. I shouldn't be saying stuff like that. You want to get mad at the person just saying the dead body. You're saying that man is cured like a ham. <laughs> or the sock. No. I think the no. sock was worse. That's... Y'all need to pick better words. That man, his whole article needed to be written better. But, like, I expect better from National Geographic. You know, the person who wrote that was sitting there like, <laughs> put it on like a sock. God. <laughs> we all think scientists are so smart, but you know, they're all just a bunch of dorks, too. Yeah. Oh, so many. What do you have? I review ancestors. Perfect timing. Like we didn't plan that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's almost like it was intentional. <laughs> okay, so ancestors. Since that's what we're trying to celebrate. If y'all didn't know, that's what we're celebrating. <laughs> Dead people. <laughs> Dead preferably your ancestors remember use live carna or real carnations not fake carnations yeah <laughs> so the definition of an ancestor is a noun a person typically one more remote than a grandparent from whom one is descended I mean, obviously, your grandparents are also your blood, but just typically, they're not dead yet. Unless your grandparents are past, then they count. An ancestor, which is also known as a forefather, a forelder, or a forebearer, is a parent or recursively the parent of an antecedent. I had to say it slow. So my brain said, mm -mm. so an antis, an see. <laughs> you tried to say it too fast so, and it said no. I, and I, and my brain said, girl, what did we learn? An antecedent or an antecedent would be a grandparent, a great grandparent, great, great grandparent, and so on. An ancestor is any person of whom one is descended in law. It is the person from whom an estate has been inherited. So two individuals have a genetic relationship if one is the ancestor of the other or if they share a common ancestor. In evolutionary theory, species that, sh that share an evolutionary ancestor are said to be of common descent. However, this concept of ancestry does not apply to some bacteria and other organisms capable of horizontal gene transfer. The fuck does horizontal Stop. gene transfer mean? Is that like asexual oh, wow. reproduction? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just wrote the words. I don't know what they mean. <laughs> um, some research suggests that the average person has twice as many female ancestors as male ancestors. 
This might have been due to the past prevalence of polygenous relations and female hypergamy. Okay, yeah, I'll say this. I read the paragraph over. I was like, am I to say this? Sure. <laughs> Um, assuming that all of an individual's ancestors are otherwise unrelated to each other, that individual has two N ancestors in the nth generation before him or her, and a total of two G plus one minus two ancestors in the G generations before him or her. It's just a whole lot of math. <laughs> in practice, however, it is clear that most ancestors of humans and any other species are multiply related. Consider n equals 40. The human species is more than 40 generations old, yet the number 240, approximately 1,012 or 1 trillion, dwarfs the number of humans who have ever lived. Oh, there's been a lot of people. Some cultures confer reverence to ancestors, both living and dead. In contrast, some more youth-oriented cultures, context, cultural context, cultures, cultural context display less veneration of elders. In other cultural contexts, some people seek providence from their deceased ancestors. This practice is sometimes known as ancestor worship or more accurately, ancestor veneration. Which we going to get into. So dead relatives serve as guardians and intercessors watching out for you from beyond the grave. Uh, I just thought about it. Let me tell you the source because I'm just going to say this verbatim out of the Encyclopedia of Spirits. The information previous to this uh, was from Wikipedia. I was going to say Wikipedia and then I was like, wait, let me check. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So this is all coming out of Miss Judica's mouth. I did not write any of this. Um, personal ancestral spirits may be the most accessible of all spirits. They are your ancestors. They have their eyes on you. They are easily invoked. Ancestral spirits are dependent on you. Ancestors do not exist without descendants. This makes them simultaneously extremely receptive and helpful and they're your family, so they feel love for you. But it also makes them dangerous and demanding because they're your family, also your elders, so they feel entitled to boss you around. It's a double-edged sword. The concept of the ancestral spirit exists around the world and in virtually all cultures and spiritual traditions. If you lack your own personal traditions, others are easily adapted. Like if you're a dirty American. <laughs> So, essentially, the dead are not really dead. They've just transitioned to new homes and new forms, but their souls still require nourishment, love, and attention. Lacking this, spirits of the dead become hungry, angry, and destructive. It is crucial to keep the spirits of the dead appeased. Happy, honored, well-fed deceased family members serve as helpful, benevolent protectors whereas hungry, ignored, deceased family members transform into dangerous ghosts. Ancestors who feel neglected may signal their frustration and unhappiness by causing misfortune, if only because cynically, but possibly accurately, they believe that if things are not going well, you'll remember them and give them offerings in exchange for their help. Ancestors are your specific lineage 
or extremely close relatives. Thus, a beloved aunt, uncle, or cousin is considered an ancestor, even if not literally so. However, there must be some blood connection. Random people you respect, close family friends, godparents, saints, or anyone else may be venerated or serve as your spiritual guardians, but they are not, by definition, ancestors. Even if ancestors were not overly helpful while living, in death that they are dependent upon you and may be deeply invested in your success. Their suffering was not in vain if you succeed and thrive. They live through you and wish the best for you, although you may have to let them know what is best and where their help is needed. In return, they wish to be remembered, loved, venerated, fed, and cared for on a regular basis. To which ancestors do you appeal? Whichever ones you prefer, or those for whom you feel the closest bonds. Your actual descent, your DNA, if you will, goes back to the dawn of human time. If you are alive, then you are the product of a long chain of ancestors who all lived long enough to reproduce. By no, <laughs> no mean feat, considering the global history of illness, infant mortality, warfare, and natural disasters. If you are comfortable with your immediate ancestors, if you, no, if you are not comfortable with your immediate ancestors, then go back further, as in the people who most recently died, then you can go back beyond them. It is not necessary for you to know exactly who they were, nor do you need to know their names. Visualize them hovering near, waiting to be honored and put to work. Ask them to identify themselves in dreams and visualizations. Uh, I know if you are a person who lives in America and are black and did not move here, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> we generally do not know our ancestors because those things weren't documented. Very few slaves were documented. Hence, you may want to do a meditation. It's not really important for you to know like their names or have pictures because they're your blood. So as far as like things as like Akashic records and the cosmic web of energy, you're still connected because you're blood. So they can find you and you can find them. Right. I was also just kind of appeasing. Okay. That kind of makes me feel warm inside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was also kind of thinking about it for um, Native Americans because Native Americans didn't tend also. to have a yeah. written record of their ancestors. That was like passed down by word of mouth. So if you didn't grow up on a reservation with your other Native American family members, chances are you don't know any of yours because I don't know, I don't know any of mine. Well, I'm sure like... If you like, if you live on, if you lived in actual, if you actual America, if you lived on the continent and you know Andrew Jackson existed, I'm sure his men didn't write down those people's names either. <laughs> they just went by. <laughs> we don't know you no more. Unfortunate, okay. We all know what the what the what some of the white people did. We go take these people, and those people are gonna be over here. Lots of stuff gets lost. Yeah. But that's okay because your ancestors, they know who you, here, your ancestors know who you are. They're spirits. They now live in the spirit world. 
So they they basically known they knew you before you even knew you were gonna be you. Depending on how old they are. Oh, excuse me. So you don't have to search for them because they're already there. They know you. If you ask to see them, they will probably step forward. So people used to make amulets from their ancestors. Some believe that a small quantity of one's parents' ashes, bones, or teeth taken from their cremation will bestow protection. Alternatively, dirt or small stones taken from their gravesite may have the same effect. If you don't want to carry around um, their ashes or their teeth, you just go to the grave and take some dirt. Ancestors are with you always. It is customary to maintain home altars for them. However, it is also traditional to visit them at graves if known. Keep the grave clean, bring flowers and gifts, and picnic among the tombs. In essence, go to their house for a change instead of always expecting them to visit you. But if you don't know where their grave is, then that's fine. They probably know that you don't know where it is. They might tell you where it is. Ask them where it is. Do that. (laughs) (laughs) You may not be able to go to it, but at least you'll know. It is traditional in many cultures to allow the dead to have a grace period, usually a year, to adjust to their new status and quote-unquote life as a dead soul before making requests for assistance. If you're, although your culture could have, you know, another um, time frame. So days to venerate your ancestors, any date of personal significance, their birthday or anniversary of death, Ancestors may be particularly receptive on your birthday or days that are significant to your particular family. If being together on Christmas or New Year's was extremely important while relatives were alive, they may return or be beckoned closer on that day. Alternatively, virtually every culture has or had days specifically devoted to commemorating the dead, hence why I'm doing this as a topic. Um, The ancient Romans celebrated the Paternalia a private holiday wherein families honored their personal dead. Paternalia occurred just before the Feralia, a public holiday intended to appease, pacify, and allay all the dead. The Catholic Church designates All Souls Day, which is November 2nd, as the day on which souls of the dead are recalled. Of course, we have Dia de los Muertos, which actually coincides with All Souls Day. It's almost like the Christians did that on purpose. And of course, we have Samhain, or Halloween, or All Hallows Eve, whatever you want to call it. Hence, that thing that's coming up, you know, you know the one. (laughs) Very quickly. (laughs) Um, For efforts point, I mean, I don't have to explain it, but for efforts point, you understand my grandma was born in June. She was a Gemini and she died on July 4th. So the summer, it's usually, I dedicate that to my grandma. 
it's been a long time since my grandma's talked to me. I should probably, um, (laughs) (laughs) reach out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Altars. The spiritist Mesa Blanca or white table may be adapted to honor ancestors. Alternatively, any kind of altar or offering table may be used. Include photographs of relatives if you have them, or objects symbolizing those relations for you instead. So, Googling pictures of Dia de los Muertos altars or ancestral altars from China, Korea, and Japan may be helpful for ideas. There are also lots of, funnily enough, there are lots of anime that show home altars for the deceased. Yeah. Just to jog your memories. In case you don't know what an ancestor altar looks like. Now I'm sad. (laughs) (laughs) I'm remembering, I'm just remembering some anime. (laughs) Sad. Specific flowers such as chrysanthemums are associated with the dead and are considered appropriate offerings. In Mexico, marigolds, the tagetes species, not calendula. In Nahuatl, they're called sempazuchitl are the flowers of the dead. In Romania, the fall, the fall, the fall blooming crocus, crocus fanaticus, that's the species, um, fulfills this function. Interestingly, the center of this crocus is a vivid yellow, similar in color to Aztec marigolds. In Japan, red spider lilies, or Lioris, L-Y-O-R-I-S, mm-hmm. are associated with death, funerals, cemeteries, and the loss of loved ones. Just for some examples. Some offerings. Um, the most basic Western offering, spiritualist or occultist, is a glass of water and a white candle. The most basic East Asian or Buddhist offering includes flowers, fruits, and incense. More elaborate offerings will also be appreciated. Serve the ancestors food they like, a food representative of your ancestry and their time on earth. If that isn't possible, offer them something that you love and consider special. So like, you can serve your ancestors, obviously, their favorite foods. If you don't know their favorite food, you can serve food from your culture if you don't necessarily have a culture or know how to make that food or what have you, then their time on earth would be like if they were, um, oh my God, what is the word? Uh, I'm thinking of like Little House on the Prairie. Be like, oh, they were alive in this day and age, so this is what they ate. Then you could make that. Or, you know, wherever. Look up ancient <laughs> Egyptian or, you know, Celtic foods if you're going back far, far, far. Also, like, tobacco is typically a great one to include because yeah. tobacco is common uh, basically across all cultures. <laughs> yeah. So I have some deified ancestors and slash ancestors around the world. Because in different cultures and religions, there are different types of ancestors. And there are also spirits 
who are considered ancestral to large groups of people or who preside over ancestors. So basically, if you don't know where to start with ancestral worship, besides your own family, but you could try these. Maybe they will also help you. So there are Achachilas, which are mountain spirits, protective ancestral spirits of the Amara people, whose ancestral home is the Andes Mountains. If that's you, that's where you look. If you believe as such, Adam and Eve are considered ancestors to those of Abrahamic faith. Well, to humanity, but if you, you know, if you believe it, then they're. Lilith does not count because even though she's the first woman, she is not our mother. She's just the first woman. Adam and Eve had children. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Adam and Eve had babies. <laughs> Although venerate Lilith, if you want, she is considered the first woman according to Jews. But she's not your blood. Is what I'm saying. Anyway, you understand. You're not stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Agaso, or Agasu, is considered an an ancestral spirit in Dahomey, Africa. There are Aumakua, which are guardian ancestral spirits of Hawaii. Avalokitesvara and Tara are considered ancestors of the Tibetan people. There are Caboclo, which are souls of the indigenous Brazilians, especially inhabitants of the Amazonian forests. Haumea is considered Polynesia's first woman, so that includes Hawaii and beyond. There's Kane, who is the Polynesian lord of the Akua, who is also considered an ancestor of humanity. There are Manes, who are ancient Rome's deified ancestors. I talked about them a bit before. The Surim are ancestral spirits and allegedly can only be seen by the Yaqui or Yaqui, or those of Yaqui or Yaqui ancestry. Um, the Yaqui people are native to the Yaqui River Valley of Sonora, Mexico, but now also live in great numbers in Arizona. And Yamaya, who is the queen of the sea, anyone of African descent whose ancestors survived the Middle Passage to the West may consider their connection to Yamaya established. It is traditionally believed that those who survived did so through her grace, while those who did not were received into her body. If you did not know, African traditions generally believe across the board, traditions across the board, generally believe that the realm of the dead is under the sea. So, you could ask her, where are my people at? <laughs> and she's I would also... like to speak. I'd like to speak to my great, 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 great grandma. Where's she at? <laughs> and she's also, like, one of the kinder deities, like, Yoruban deities. She's considered one of the kinder ones because she's, you know, the mother. Yeah. Granted, she does have her um, not-kind aspect because the ocean has two sides to it. You know, it's calm, and then it can be destructive at the same time. So she has two aspects. But the one most people talk about is her calm aspect, her motherly aspect. Yeah. 
I didn't put any traditions because you have Google. <laughs> we would be here all day if you have a Google. Also, I did that last year, so. <laughs> also, yeah, that was already done. Those are what ancestors are. Feel free to have at it yeah. because as I just said, you know, if you were alive, means you have ancestors since the dawn of time. You could be here all day. Just depends on which ones you're trying to get at. Talking about I that. Mean, <laughs> the farther back you go, the more descent. You, 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 you don't. The farther back you go, the more of us there are. So, like, you're going to have lots of cousins and shit. You don't have to do it all by yourself. <laughs> like, your grandma may have only had two children. But you're 15 times grandma. Um, at this point, there's a lot of people connected to her. That's what I'm saying. She, You don't have to do it. <laughs> Somebody else can. Unless she is talking to you or something. Then please answer her. <laughs> yeah, don't leave grandma, like, just hanging on the phone. <laughs> you're like, why do I keep dreaming about this woman? Who is this She's woman? She's like, oh... <laughs> you exist because of me. You're welcome. She's like standing over your dad, just like, get her to fucking answer me. <laughs> get your daughter to answer the phone. <laughs> <laughs> what is your media for mummies? <sighs> My media <laughs> for mummies is The Mummy. <laughs> and I'm talking Great. about the 1999 film, not the. Uh, the more recent one, which I think came out in, like, 2019 or something. It was really recent. Yeah. So, The Mummy is a 1999 American film written and directed by Stephen Somers. It is a remake of the 1932... Ooh, wow. 1932 film of the same name with stars Brandon Fraser... Brendan... F Brendan Fraser, <laughs> Rachel Weiss, John Hanna, John Hanna, and Kevin J. O'Connor. So, if you didn't watch The Mummy as a kid, I, I don't know how you managed that, but, you know, we all miss movies. Maybe you're young. Fair. Fair. <laughs> I just realized, this came out three years after I was born. That's so weird to think about. <laughs> yeah, it came out the year after I was born. So, I'm not gonna go, like, full through the plot. That's just a lot. Also, it ruins movies. So, uh, in Thebes, <laughs> in Thebes, Egypt, 19, or 1290 BC, High Priestess Imhotep, Imhotep has an affair with Anku... Naman, Naman, the mistress of Pharaoh Seti, the first. Imhotep, and I don't really want to say that name again. <laughs> Naman, kill the Pharaoh after he discovers their relationship. That man flees what? while she kills herself, believing that Imhotep can resurrect her. He and his priests seal steal her corpse and travel to wherever that is the city of the dead uh -huh. the, the resurrection ritual is stopped by seti's bodyguard 
the Med Medhai Imohetep is buried alive with flesh-eating scarab beetles and sealed in a sarcophagus at the feet of the statue of the Egyptian god Anubis. Anubis was sitting there like, motherfucker, trying to take my peeps. <laughs> In, 19, in 1926, Jonathan uh, Carnahan presents his sister, Evelyn, a librarian and inspiring Egyptologist, with an intricate box and map that led to the City of the Dead. Jonathan reveals he stole the box from an American adventurer, Rick O'Connell, who discovered the city while in the French Foreign Legion. Evelyn and Jonathan find Rick and make a deal with him to lead them to the city. Rick guides Evelyn and her party to the city, encountering a band of American treasure hunters led by Rick's cowardly acquaintance, Benny Gaber. Despite being warned to leave the Ardith Bay, leader of the Medhai, the two expeditions continue their excavations. Evelyn searches for the Book of uh, Amun-Ra, made of pure gold. Instead of finding the book, she stumbles upon Imhotep's remains. The team of Americans, meanwhile, discover the Black Book of the Dead, accompanied by canopic jars carrying Ankh-Su-Naman's God preserved organs. Anyways, from there, as you can imagine, they accidentally resurrect the mummies, and shit goes to shit. Yeah. It is... Shit goes to shit real quick. I haven't watched The Mummy in a really long time, but I do remember that it spooked the crap out of me when I was a kid. It's definitely a good creep. Uh, if you're looking for a not-ghost story, I do recommend. I recommend this one. I mean, the newest mummy wasn't, like, horrible, but I recommend this one. And that's what I have for my media. What's your media? I bring you Coco. Coco! I love Coco. If y'all don't know, this is newer than the mummy. And if y'all haven't seen Coco, I'm really ashamed. <laughs> um, Coco is a 2017 American computer animated fantasy film produced by Pixar and released by Disney. Coco is about Dia de los Muertos. And it's about venerating your ancestors and what happens when you don't. Or rather, when and if. I was going to say if, but no, no. You see what happens when. But I won't spoil that for you. So... Of course, like every other children movie, the main character's a child. <laughs> Lovely little Miguel. Miguel wants to be a musician. Uh, you can't be a musician in Miguel's, in Miguel's family, which he's like, okay. <laughs> That's chill, I guess. Like, sure, Grandma. So not only can they not do music, but there is somebody missing on their ofrenda which is the altar, where you put the photos. So basically, this is, I was going to say a coming-of-age story, but, like, what is the opposite of that? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. 
Miguel has a, he has some, he learns some things. He learns some ancestral truths. He cavorts with his ancestors. He learns of his ancestors. And I mean that literally. Because there are some question marks. And those question marks become answered. And then at the end, basically by communicating with his ancestry and learning some truths, he basically heals his family. And lovely Mama Coco. Yeah, he does some ancestral healing. Yeah. Some deep ancestral healing. Literally. <laughs> uh, this is a Disney movie, meaning there is music. I feel the need to tell you that, just in case you're one of those people who don't like that. That's chill. But this has music in it. Like, <laughs> so what Disney do? Would it be um, a Disney movie without s- music? They don't sing in Brave. There's music, but they don't sing. So, anyway, Anyway. so, basically, if you would like to learn about not only Dia de los Muertos, but also, um, I had a brain fart for a second, not only Dia de los Muertos, but also just Mexican culture, kind of why they do Dia de los Muertos. Also, if you are a shaman of sorts and you would like to visit some realms of the dead, that happens here. Maybe this could give you some inspiration. What you might be walking into. Maybe. I'm not saying it looks like this. I'm just saying words. I'm just saying. (laughs) I've never been there. (laughs) This movie is very... I don't want to spoil anything for you. It's like hard to to talk... I don't want to talk about it in a way because I don't want to spoil any of it. You have to watch it. Just like I didn't want to spoil Pet Cemetery. I don't want to spoil this either, but it's very, this is a very sweet movie, a bit of an emotional movie. It's a little bit like sad. Oh yeah, definitely an emotional roller coaster. It ends happy, but it it can be a little like, oh. It's like angst with a happy ending. (laughs) Yeah. It's also funny sometimes and it's a beautiful film. Oh yeah. It looks gorgeous so if you're an animation person you need to watch this today i think it's good dia de los muertos is i didn't say this actually excuse me it is multiple days dia de los muertos is not just one day depending on where you live depends on how long it is but it is more than one day i think this is a very good thing to watch around November 1st and 2nd and maybe even 3rd. I don't know you. But I just think it's a good, it's good to watch because that's literally what it's about. That's all I have because I'm not going to tell you what happens. You have to go watch Coco. Watch Coco. It's so good. Watch Coco. It is so good. And the music is good. I'm, I promise you it's going to be stuck in your head. No, literally. You are going to be singing Remember Me <laughs> no. for days. Honestly, <sighs> it is a lovely song. If you like traditional Mexican music, you will also like Coco. If you would like to hear more from us, talk about spoops. I mean, spoopy season is done now, but. But it's never done year. in our hearts. 
Like, it's always spoopy season when you're a witch, but next year, if you want to come back for more spoops, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Mixed Witches Podcast. And you can also shoot us an email. Tell us about your ancestors. Mixed Witches Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Society6, which is also at Mixed Witches Podcast. Or you can head over to our website where we have all of our episodes and some blog posts, which is also at mixedwitchespodcast.squarespace.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode, enjoyed all of the mummification information you didn't need, all of the ancestor information you did need. You do need. And, you know, go watch Coco. So hopefully you've done that by next week, and we'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Our minds were getting faded Did not appreciate all that they created We're chasing after that witch's brew Damn, 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 damn Thinking more, but doing less Keeping score, but failing at the test, y'all Chasing after that witch's brew Damn, 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 damn Chasing after that witch's brew Got nothing better to do Cause y'all sailing down Easiest street again Damn X marks the spot Or is it O Getting high then feeling so low Chasing after that witch's brew Damn, 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 damn Just
start to go And then you stop Cause you're sailing down Z Street again Damn Almost within reach But out of your grasp The last drop at the bottom of your glass You're chasing after that witch's brew Damn, 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 damn,